0: We are live. This isn't live, it's recorded, but welcome to the Shoe Podcast. My name is Shoe, hence the Shoe Podcast. I'm very ill. I am under the weather, so to speak. Um, yeah, I have a, uh, a suffering from an illness known as the common cold. The My nose is so clogged, my nostrils are just clogged with goo it's so hard to breathe i'm a mouth breather by nature just just generally uh but now it's like i have no nose um i can't smell anything i'm perpetually breathing in and out of my mouth and inhaling all the toxic chemicals um and nitrogen that is in our atmosphere um, I guess I'm doing that anyways but uh I feel like without the filters of having your nose hairs um your nostril hairs and whatnot you're just sucking in so much more garbage into your lungs um I'm producing so much phlegm too it's isn't it phlegm is kind of like it's like come for your throat isn't it at least that's what it looks like to me it's a little yellower but I just assume that's because I'm Asian. Is that true? Is it? Is Asian phlegm yellower than Caucasian phlegm? Phlegm—that's such a weird, weird word. It is. It's just so cum-like, the texture of it. There are times when I'll, I'll spew phlegm out of my mouth, and it's it's almost satisfying the degree amount of phlegm in the tissue, you know? I almost want to kind of show it to people to show what I can achieve in this life. Um, Yeah, so I don't know if this sounds any different than usual, but I'm feeling kind of drained of life, kind of out of it. Yeah, when you just have a cold, it's your consciousness is so altered. Everything is more drained of life than usual at least it just you, you feel kind of groggy and tired and just there are times where I'm like why do I feel this shitty right now I thought I was feeling better and then I realized oh I have a cold you know it wasn't the uh dawning realization that life is meaningless it was just a cold um so yeah that's really all I have to say. I wish I had more to to speak of. But I don't. Is is the common cold the most um common illness? I mean it's called the common cold, but is it that common? Is it the most common illness, or is there a more common illness than that? Like existence. Or um <laughs> Homosexuality. So I don't know if um what which by the way I've recently uh realized I have more I'm gayer than I thought I was. I have more gay in me than I previously thought. Um and just if you looked at my DNA, there's maybe a couple more of the fag gene than I would have assumed. Um, Which is what I'm saying is uh, I was meditating, and I'm a bad meditator. You know what, give me a sec. Let me uh, switch my headphones so I can actually hear myself. Okay, so I was meditating a few days ago, and um, I'm a bad meditator, so I'm constantly just lost in thought. And uh, one of the thoughts I had was of just a, a rock hard cock right you don't have that when you meditate you don't you don't have because when I meditate all I'm thinking about is dicks so I don't know about you but um and so I was thinking about that rock hard cock and like would I be down to jerk it off and I was like kind of down would I be down to even blow it I was kind of cool with it I was like yeah dude if you want (laughs) you know yeah um and you know it, it didn't go as far as I wanted to fuck this guy or have him fuck me or it's like a, it's it was just it wasn't even that charged with sexuality really right and I mean it's inherently charged because it's fucking jerking a dick off but it wasn't that really I' I've had meditations where I'm so lost in thought and I'll just fantasize about you know a hot girl or something. And, you know, I'll inevitably get aroused and have a boner. And because um, I am perverted. I have a perverted mind. Can you be super perverted and also really enlightened? Like, can you, are there like, are there like sick? I'm asking basically, is there such a thing as a Zen pedophile? That's kind of what i'm getting at is that a contradiction or it's actually possible like there are a few zen pedophiles on earth they're just not that famous because they're pedophiles um but but they exist maybe um yeah so i just I, i i was i've had meditations where i'm uh fantasizing about girls and i'll get a boner but i don't didn't have that this time um, but when I had this recognition that, oh, I was actually, I didn't feel um, nothing, right? I felt some kind of leaning towards it. And also a kind of, uh, usually a kind of shame will follow. But this time I I just felt kind of love for myself. And there was a, a bliss might be too strong a word, but I felt good. I felt like I wanted to accept this part of me. Now that doesn't mean I'm... You know, so when this kind of thing happens, you want to search for a label almost, even though you really can't label these things, no? Um, but you want to, and, uh, or at least I do. And so I was thinking, well, if somebody called me straight, I mean, that's, I would say that's correct for the most part, but it doesn't capture the entirety of who I am. But if somebody called me bi, bisexual, I mean, I think that's also fair. You know, I I now recognize that I have something for both genders, but I, I can't swing either way. I don't think I'd ever be attracted enough to actually date a guy. And I don't think that's just a matter of repression or, or of me just pushing down with shame. It might be, but I think it's simply the fact that I'm more really just attracted to women. I would really only date uh, women, even though I preferred, you know, so to speak, masculine women. It would still, I still prefer... Uh, women so it's kind of a thing where i i don't know what exactly to call it like if if there was let's say there's a spectrum which people say there's you know 100% gay and 100% straight right those are the two poles i would maybe be like fucking i don't know i I, maybe i i thought before i was 99% straight and now i'm maybe 90% 80% 70% i don't know somewhere around there straight um and but there's still a part of me that's gay right so i was thinking maybe the, the term queer is best to describe me because it's so vague and broad you know applies it people use it in different ways uh, is it a gender is it a sexual orientation is it you know what is it right so i i think queer would probably describe me but if you, you could describe me as bi or straight i think that's fine too um I think I've spent more time right now talking about the labels and describing who I am rather than just the simple realization of, of my gayness. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a fag. And uh, yeah, that's kind of something I realized about myself. I don't know what my point was there. I guess it's uh, be yourself, everybody. I'm just ill. I'm ill, Ill with gayness and with the common cold yeah like i said i really don't know how different i sound i may sound as enthused as before with the previous podcasts but in terms of feeling i feel very drained of life which is fitting because today's topic we have the philosopher arthur schopenhauer who is kind of the emo philosopher you know he was he was a philosophical pessimist. like after you read his philosophy, you need a Vicodin like you need something you know it, his philosophy is like if fallout Fallout boy, you know was like really hard to read or some shit like that Fallout boy. so yeah. We're going to talk about arthur schopenhauer today because i read a kind of an intro book on him the arthur schopenhauer by the way uh is a german philosopher from the 19th century so if that gives you kind of any kind of perspective as to where he lies in the uh, i don't know timeline of history i guess that's that's where he lies um and so i read this intro book on him around 200 300 page kind of summary of his ideas by Julian Young called Schopenhauer uh, in the kind of Ru- Ru- Rutledge, Rutledge philosopher series. I don't know how to pronounce it. But yeah, uh, clearly I just read this fucking book. I'm not no expert on Schopenhauer, right? I didn't read Schopenhauer's texts uh, word for word. In fact, if I did, I would not have no idea what the fuck he's talking about, right? I'm not intellectually capable of digesting the fucking flowery language and uh, philosophical terminology that is often um, included in these texts. Yeah, so that's not... I'm not going to be able to articulate everything he says with precision. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about my favorite ideas. Three big favorite ideas I have, um, at least in my interpretation of Schopenhauer, that um, I found interesting and we'll go through each of these three ideas, and, um, you know, well, first we'll start with a description of the, that idea, and then we'll list kind of a problem with it, uh, and then also note something I like about it, right? Um, because within each of these ideas is a lot of truth, um, but they're also kind of flawed. They're old ideas coming from an old time, but, um, yeah, I, I really liked reading about Schopenhauer. Uh, it rang very true to me. Yeah. Um, which is often the case with people who are so pessimistic and sad. they kind of attuned to life in some way. They know something that most of us miss a lot of the time. Okay, so the three big ideas I want to talk about, uh, the first one is called the will to life. Okay, the will to life or in, um often interchangeably used um, or called the will as well. So the will or the will to life. That's our big first idea. Uh, first big idea. And the second one is desire and boredom, or stress and boredom. That's our second idea we're going to explore. And the third big idea is the denial of the will. The denial of the will to life, Um, otherwise known as salvation, I guess. Um, But we'll get deep into it. So uh, let me start with the first big idea, the will to life. I'm going to you know, explain my, at least my basic understanding of it, and then give a problem I see or, or, you know, Julian Young brings up, and then I'll talk about what I like about it. And if you find my uh, explanation of it boring, um, don't blame me, blame the cold. My ego could not handle it. So, idea number one, let's talk about this. Schopenhauer's big idea, the will to life. This is probably his biggest idea, by the way. If there's one, you know, overarching uh, idea that kind of, you know, what's Schopenhauer's big thing? The will to life. The will. That is his um, big contribution to philosophy. So let's see what exactly this will to life is he's talking about. Well, the general idea is that there is a fundamental force, this primary force that fuels everything in the world every living creature every organism every inanimate thing everything that force is the will to life the will so what what exactly is that then fine okay there's this big force running everything what is that well the will to life is what drives us to live and also to pass on uh our genes or or create life so to speak yeah it's the will to live and to pass on life essentially. That's really what um, the core of the will to life is. And, you know it's the kind of drive that makes us cling to life. It makes us have this existential or sorry, existence bias essentially. It makes us uh, fight for our survival, right? The will to life is a ceaseless striving for things. We want whatever and it's wanting at the core of it. So even more broadly speaking, the will to life isn't just uh, the desire for life or the desire to pass on life, the desire to live, but every kind of uh, wanting, hoping, you know, shunning, striving, fearing, loving, hating, all of these things are expressions of this fundamental force called the will to life. And, you know, I, I think anybody can relate to it. I mean, we all desire things, incessantly we always desire things and sometimes we desire to desire like to want is to be fundamentally human so him recognizing oh this is a big thing Schopenhauer recognizes that this is at the core this desire this will is at the core of everything might be spot on right now the will to life. Uh, obviously, I-, I think we can all intuitively say, yeah, that's true for humans and animals. Clearly, these you know conscious beings have interests. They want to live. They have. They will to live. They have the will to live. Um, so that's not too far of a stretch, right? Oh, they desire things. Sure, fine. Those are expressions of the will to life. Whatever, I get it. But is that true for everything? Schopenhauer says yes. So Julian Young uh, brings up some examples here. Uh, The heart beats in order to circulate blood. The giraffe has a long neck in order to reach the leaves of tall trees. The sunflower turns towards the sun in order to synthesize. Clearly here, in all these examples, there's no conscious intellect at work, right? I mean, the sunflower isn't thinking, oh shit, the sun's here. Let me just turn really quick and get the, oh shit, that feels good. Like, that's not happening inside you know this mind of the sun right Uh, or, or the sunflower right it's just fucking uh turning toward it uh because that's how it gets to do photosynthesis and shit there's no intellect working but Schopenhauer would say that's still the will to life this blind big will acting on the sunflower it it's it, it, the force runs through the world right and running through the world it fuels essentially the sunflowers turn towards the sun and so we'll look at you know whether that's um really true about the world but but here the this is schopenhauer's idea yeah uh he said it's even true for inorganic matter right we're talking about fucking flowers that's still organic but inorganic matter too like water rushing down a river or the flight of iron towards a magnet. All of these movements, these um, leanings towards one end or the other, its all. these are all expressions of the will to life. That's kind of what Schopenhauer says. In fact, he says that the will to life, because of this will, affects everything. It kind of is why we see a sort of harmony in nature, right? There's like every plant is kind of pretty well adapted its soil and climate. You know, uh, predators have developed mechanisms in order to easily catch prey and prey have de- developed mechanisms to uh, protect themselves from the predators that might eat them. So th- there's this balance going on. That's all expressions of the will to life acting on everything. And all of these, you know, wills that uh, act on, let's, you know, on, on, on all these individual animals, all these individual plants, all these individual rocks, they're all... One big will called the will to life. It's all one thing. And here uh, is really the interesting thing. And the one thing that most intrigues me about the will to life is that all these, not only are these, all these uh, will, wills to life just one big will to life, but the will to life affects itself. What does that mean? Well, the will to life is not separable from the world it affects. In fact, the will to life is the world. That is to say, the will to life simultaneously creates and is the world. Right? It's a kind of self-creating entity. So whatever the will to life does to the world, because the will to life is the world, it's essentially doing it to itself. Which is kind of a weird concept. Um, But it says the will to life and the world, two sides of the same coin. So that's really um, a kind of summary of the, uh, the will to life. I, feel, I hope I uh, made it pretty clear. The, the crux of it is that uh, at the core is that we want to, we have this drive in all of us and in everything that makes us want to live and pass on life. And all of our hopes, desires, you know, wishes, uh, fears, all of these are expressions of this big, deep will to life. And that will to life fucking affects everything, whether it's a human being, or a plant, or an animal, or a rock, or water, whatever. It affects everything in the world. And this world that it affects is, in fact, the will to life. So that's kind of, um, I hope, a quick summary of everything I just articulated. Not too complex, no? That's uh, At least my understanding of it is not too complex. (laughs) That's the gist of it. Um, okay, so here are some thoughts on the will to life. I want to articulate or make clear you know, one problem with it, which is that I think we can say in this day and age that the will to life itself is clearly bullshit. There is no fundamental force in the world acting on all of us called the will to life. And it's a blind will and it's a whole day and we don't realize it, but it's affecting everything in the world. No. I mean, Schopenhauer, this, he came up with all this shit before Darwin, right? So this was before all this natural selection shit, I mean, it had even come out, let alone become mainstream in the, you know, scientific world, essentially. So this was before, you know, Darwin helped us realize like, oh, there doesn't have to be some will, some end goal, some aim, essentially, um, that the natural selection process doesn't have to necessarily have an aim. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's just that a fucking, you know, it's the animals that survived, they just survived. They were just better at surviving. So they survived and they were passed pass on their genes. And that just kept happening. You know, the, the long neck of the giraffe isn't, it's not the will to life is acting on the giraffe and the, so it has a long neck. It's not, it just, the giraffes with short necks died. They died and the long ones were, Better eating shit. So they survived. And that's it. No grand design. No will to life acting on it. There doesn't have to be an aim to this. Even if the will to life's aim, it's blind. So it doesn't have an intellect, supposedly. But there's still kind of an aim, right? It's directing everything towards life. But really, it's Darwin proved that there's no aim here. It just fucking happens. And the bitches that survive, they survive. That's it. So clearly, this will to life, it, in terms of you know, precisely, accurately, you know, uh, capturing the nature of the world, is wrong. Still has a lot of truth to it, and we'll explore a little bit more of that truth in the second and third idea. But really, one thing I just want to hit, hit on now is that the beauty of the will to life is that it captures the togetherness of everything. Right? Schopenhauer says that all the wills to life are just one big will to life. And that will to life itself is inseparable. It's the same, two sides of the same coin as the world. There's a kind of oneness, a unity, a togetherness that is posited here. We are one, essentially, is kind of the, uh, the, uh, the message here. Right? In our daily lives, we constantly project divisions between us and and the things around us and between the the other things and things, right? Like we'll see a chair and we'll go, oh, that's that's a chair. That's it's separate from me. It's and I create this border between me and the chair, because we are not the same, we are two different things. But really, the chair is just a fucking collection of molecules configured in a certain way, and then we looked at it and we go, that that's chair. Right? But we project that onto this collection of molecules. Really, it's just a collection of molecules like us. We're all just a fucking stew of atoms. Adam- There's not, it's not like the chair has this inherent chairness to it, right? And, and and because that chairness is oozing out of the chair, it's just, oh, that that's chair. No, we looked at it and we were like, that's kind of chair-like though. That's a chair. We projected our concepts onto the world. When really the truth is that All these divisions, ultimately arbitrary. We are all made out of the same stuff. We are all a stew of atoms. We're all basically just one fucking thing. You can call it oneness or emptiness or essencelessness or fucking togetherness, whatever you want to call it. But the core idea here, we're all one stuff. As you know, a black man who became a white man once said, we are the world. So, uh, why is this important, though? Why, why is this oneness shit important? Um, I think it has a lot of implications, but the one Schopenhauer points out is this. It's important because it has implications for egoism and altruism. The egoist, he says, believes that he's separate from everybody, Right? So that's why he does shit whatever he wants to for himself, even if it hurts other people, because he said that, you know, you're different from me. So I'm just going to do what works for me. If it hurts you in the process, sorry, man, but we're fucking different. Whereas the altruist doesn't think like that. The altruist recognizes that there is no boundary between you and me. And he dissolves that boundary. He realizes oh, that, 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 that I can empathize with others because we are all one and the same right as young it, the altruist loves us which includes herself right the altruist includes herself but it's everybody else is an equal part of us this is to say the altruist cares about everyone on this planet equally so of course you know help yourself you know egoism isn't inherently wrong i mean after all you're a part of us Right? So the fuck can help yourself, of course. But don't act so selfishly that you're going to hurt other people. You know what? Sometimes do something good for other people. Because we're all equal parts of this community known as us. So that's kind of, you know... It, it, it helps us recognize that we're all in this shit together. And that when you see reality clearly the nature of things as they really are, it kind of drives us, pulls us towards a more altruistic way of being. So that's kind of uh, the first big idea I really wanted to go on, the will to life, right? And uh, But the will to life gets deeper than that, and has implications uh, that I would say are even more interesting. And so let's get to our second big idea, desire and boredom. All right, desire and boredom. This this is probably my favorite idea of Schopenhauer's. It's the desire and boredom argument, or the stress and boredom argument, as it's often called. And the core idea here is that this whole will to life we've been talking about, it condemns us to a life of suffering. There's a pretty famous quote by uh, Schopenhauer that goes, I was gripped by the misery of life the truth was that this world could not have been the work of an all living being but rather that of a of a devil who had brought creatures into existence in order to delight in their sufferings yeah it's emo's fuck He he is the emo philosopher the idea is that we are slaves to this will to life a will so blind, it gives no fucks about how much we suffer, yeah? No, by the way, this is the interesting thing is that the will to life makes us suffer. But the will to life is simultaneously us, right? The will to life is the world that it affects. So in a weird way, the will to life is hurting itself. It's simultaneously the perpetrator and the victim of its own evil. But how? Okay, how? Yeah, fine. We're slaves to the will to life. It makes us suffer. How exactly does this will make us suffer? Well, here's the core of the desire and boredom argument, the stress and boredom argument. I think it's a really good analysis or articulation of the human condition, of what, why it's so happy to be ha- hard to be happy in this life. Okay, so here's how this whole thing goes, right? the uh, The will to life. Makes us desire things, All right? So we want something in this life. Maybe if we think if we'll get this, if we get this thing, we'll finally be happy. we will make us happier, and so we we desire this so badly that oftentimes it's almost to a point where it's like if I don't get this, I'm gonna be unhappy. So we toil and toil and toil, romanticizing uh, the future. As well as the past, sometimes in the process. And we keep trying until we finally satisfy that desire. We've reached that goal. We've attained that thing we've always wanted, right? But that joy that comes from satisfying that desire, as fulfilling as it may be for a while, it eventually withers away. And what starts to set in? Those of boredom. And now that we're in the throes of boredom, which is clearly a form of suffering, we want to escape that suffering. So why we we seek to find another pleasure? And this time, when we get this pleasure, we're gonna be happy forever. And so we toil and toil and toil again, satisfying that desire, until that desire, the joy that comes from the desire withers away, and we repeat this cycle again and again and again and again. And that really is the core of life. That is to say, the will to life thrusts us between desire on the one hand and boredom on the other. It's a fucking eternal pendulum swing between desire, boredom, right? Stress, boredom, stress, boredom, stress, boredom. You will, you stress. You don't will, you get bored. Either way, suffering. The core of what Schopenhauer is trying to say here is damned if you do... Damned if you don't. Either way, you fucking suffer. The tragedy is that, you know, we try and try and try to enrich our lives and attain this happiness, but, and now I'm quoting Schopenhauer here, when most men look back at the end of their lives, they will be surprised to see that the very thing they allowed to slip by, unappreciated and unenjoyed, was their life. In fact, you, you don't even have to lack something to want something, no? Like let's say I've always wanted to be healthy, but now I'm I'm healthy. I fucking work out, I eat well, I'm I'm looking good, I'm feeling good, I'm a healthy person. I've attained good health. Yeah, but you probably want to maintain that good health. So in a way, you still lack something, no? It's the thing you lack, even though you feel like you don't lack it, is security of Having, you know the security of having that possession, having good health for you know a period of time or for maybe even forever until you die. So even then you're striving to maintain that good health. We are always under the throes of desire. You may say, okay, fine. desire sucks that stress sucks, but boredom. It's not that bad man. Yeah the desire part sucks, but boredom that's that's not too bad. Really? Tell that to anybody who's experienced a level of existential boredom. One that colors the entirety of their day every single day. That is to say, ask anybody who is depressed. Who feels alienated. For whom existential boredom creeping into their life. That's just a daily thing. Clearly, they're going to tell you they're not happy not a picture of human flourishing. The idea here as articulated by Young, the the author of the book I've been reading, is even when nothing is engaging our will, the pressure of the will still very much exists. In other words, we're affected by the will to will. Right there there's still that pressure. We're still going to be suffering because the will to life is acting on us. So at the core, at the heart of why we have to suffer, why we're on this pendulum between desire and boredom, desire and boredom, is because the will to life is perennially dissatisfied. And as such, we endlessly suffer. Now, I, I find this a very compelling or accurate portrait of human life. And before I gush all over it, I want to point out one problem, which is that there is a difference between the will's um, non satisfaction, so to speak, and then the feeling of dissatisfaction. This is to say, you might want to complete that screenplay, right? That's your goal. And until you really feel, finish it, it's like, fuck, I haven't, don't, I don't get that feeling of accomplishment. But it doesn't mean you have to suffer until you finish that goal. Until you finally finish that screenplay. In fact, the process of writing, right, of creating this new art, I guess, can be deeply enriching, fulfilling. And maybe the most important part of the screenwriting process is actually writing, right? Not just complete, but just add to to write. The journey of getting there attaining that goal satisfying the desire doesn't have to be miserable right there's an eon article on schopenhauer that uh, kind of points out the difference between telic and atelic activities telic activities and atelic activities telic activities are activities where we just fucking uh, there's a goal and you complete that goal and done like you want to raise you get that raise Goal complete. That's a telic activity A telic activities um, they're kind of an unending process. I'm quoting the article here. It says, think of listening to music, parenting, spending time with friends. They are things you can stop doing. But you cannot finish or complete them. Their temporality is not that of a project with an ultimate goal. But of a limitless process. Right? the Joy comes from, not from the project's completion, but from the actual process of carrying out that project. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is a lot of the time it's about the journey, not the destination, right? The journey doesn't have to be fucking misery. In fact, you can find joy in that journey. What Schopenhauer misses here is that we can be happy while willing, right? That's essentially the core here. While desiring, we can still be happy. We can be happy making goals, trying to reach them, because there is joy to be found in the process of reaching that goal. The key is to engage in projects that you find nourishing in and of themselves, rather than seeing seeing them simply as a fucking means to an end. But that's really besides the point here, in my view, because he captures something very true about life which is at the core of suffering I mean he calls it will but really a desire attachment when we suffer we want reality to be other than what it is we're confronted with this re- reality in front of us and we refuse to shake hands with it We want, no I, I want this other thing I don't want things to be like this and that's not bad in itself but as long as we remain slaves this perpetual clinging and striving without ever examining this striving or clinging structure or underlying mechanism, right? The way it pulls on our psyches. We will suffer. We are indeed in a pendulum between desire and boredom and desire and mortem a lot of the time. And so much suffering comes from chasing things and ceaselessly running on this Hedonistic treadmill. So I think, although Schopenhauer is, you know, it's not a full, holistic analysis of, uh, of desire or the way it causes us suffering, it really gets at the heart of a lot of what makes us unhappy in this life. Okay, so that's idea number two. He says, life is suffering because... We're constantly pivoting between desire and boredom, stress and boredom, stress and boredom. Is there a solution to this? Is there some kind of salvation to be found in this life? Can we get out of this miserable state that we seem to be condemned to? Schopenhauer says yes. And that answer is big idea number three, the denial of the will. Okay, so let's get into it. Before I, I I go into the design of the world, though, I want to address one thing, which is that if life sucks so much, should we just kill ourselves? Isn't suicide the option? Why salvation? Why not just fucking die? I mean, fucking, it's misery, right? Schopenhauer says, no, no, suicide, not not good. It's an act of extreme egoism. An extreme lack of empathy for other people. Why? Because a person who commits suicide at least the suicide of despair, right? He does so because he is so alone, so detached from everybody else. He he believes that he looks everywhere and everybody's having a jolly old good time. They're fucking invited to this party of happiness, but I wasn't. I'm the only one suffering this much. Nobody understands. And nobody's going to help me. I'm alone. I'm condemned to this life of misery unlike everybody else. Right? The person who commits suicide feels alone in her misery, so alone that living one more second becomes unbearable. That's to say the suicidal person fails to recognize how universal suffering is. Right, If, if there's any, it's pain is the connective tissue that bonds us all together. That's really perhaps the most universal thing. If you recognize that suffering is universal, a condition that affects fucking everyone who will ever fucking exist on this planet, you'd realize that suicide is just a futile effort. It's just a fuck. You can do it. But if you really cared about us, and if you really recognize that all of us, we're all going through the same shit, we're all in this together. We are one fucking thing. Then you realize that suicide does jack shit. It does nothing to solve the problem. Now, you know, I think suicide is a little more complex than that. But I think Schopenhauer is the point. So he says, okay, 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 suicide's not the answer. What is? He says asceticism. Or what he calls the denial of the will. And Schopenhauer isn't necessarily talking about being a monk or some shit. Like never eating, never fucking, never satiating any of your desires. It's not necessarily like that. Although that is included in this picture of asceticism. But the Schopenhauerian saint, so to speak, this ideal figure who has recognized the denial of of the will, here's what happens, right? There's a person who's like super altruistic because he realizes or she realizes, and you know, you got to help everyone because fucking there's so much suffering in this life and we're all one thing. So you got to help out, help out, help out, super altruistic, super awesome. But then fucking she's at one point has to confront the reality that no matter what she does, no matter how many people she helps. There's so much more suffering. It's fucking misery whack-a-mole. You know, you can fucking whack the uh, whatever fucking animal that pops out. Um, Mole, I guess. I I don't know why I never connected that until now. But I'm retarded. So there's um misery whack mole It's just fucking you hit one, but then another pops out, right? You can fucking relieve suffering in one place, but in another place, it's just gonna fucking there's like 10 more people suffering way more and just you can't get to all of it. No matter how much you do to help, there's too much suffering in this world. It's like embedded in our existence. When she's confronted with this reality, she realizes oh, I, I have to stop Trying to satisfy or affirm this will. Even the willing of the the will that characterizes boredom. And finally, she truly denies the will. That is to say, she is no longer willing. Not even willing the will. She, She is not even willing not to will, right? She just is. That is Schopenhauer's picture of the denial of the will. And it's really similar to the end goal of Buddhism, if, you know, if there is an end goal. I mean, I guess with Buddhism that you're not really supposed to use goal-oriented language, but really, if there is an end goal, it's kind of enlightenment, nirvana, right? Where you're no longer um, affected by attachment and the way our minds lean on one side or the other. We can notice everything. So that kind of mirrors the denial of the will. So that's kind of the core uh, idea there, but uh, I think there's a lot to say there. On the one hand, I think Schopenhauer is right. That is to say, desire, attachment, as we mentioned before, rests at the heart of human suffering. And hear that siren go. Somebody is clearly suffering in this very moment. And that person is me because I'm so annoyed by the fucking sound of the siren. What the fuck this is? Don't interrupt my podcast go have a broken heart somewhere else please um (laughs) okay um right desire attachment it's fucking at the heart of our suffering right and our and this world is chock full of suffering and the only way to extinguish this suffering this unnecessary suffering especially is to notice its underlying mechanisms to, to notice our attachment to things to notice the will so to speak when i read uh sam harris's waking up and then a, a, a little intro book to buddhism after that it just fucking changed how i view life completely the first time this happened was in high school with existentialism and then the second time it's happened is with this kind of buddhist view perspective on things uh when i read it in college it just complete i the way i looked at The human condition and suffering and our feelings was so utterly different. It was, you know, a lot of it's kind of been abused by uh, the, uh, whatchamacallit, the white supremacist community. This idea of red-pilling where you take the red pill and fucking you realize all this shit that white people are better. But it felt like that. It felt like, holy fuck. How did I not realize these things before? And I'm so glad that I, I read up on this shit because now I have a perspective I've never really uh, had really taken the time to absorb before. Right. This is why I meditate every day, at least right now. It's a hard habit to keep on going, but at least right now I'm meditating every day and why I find that it's fucking the most important thing I do almost. It may be the most important thing I do, at least in terms of, of building habits. It's probably the most important thing I do. Mindfulness meditation. Noticing the contents of my consciousness and the way I lean towards things and away from things, my aversion to things, my clinging towards things. Noticing those things and how they are at the root of my unnecessary suffering. Right? All of us suffer unnecessarily on a daily fucking basis. The shame that eats at your soul for a whole fucking day Versus just a few seconds? That's a world's difference. So clearly there is some truth to what Schopenhauer is saying. The will must, in some ways, be denied. I guess denied is kind of the word I'm a little bit uncomfortable with, but at least noticed. But, it can't be the full answer. And this is where Nietzsche comes in. Friedrich Nietzsche, he was the one of the big existentialist philosophers. And um, he used to be a huge, diehard fan of Schopenhauer. Huge fan. Schopenhauer was his favorite philosopher. Until at one point, he did a complete 180 and basically rejected almost everything Schopenhauer said. And what's the core difference here? What made Nietzsche Nietzsche? Well, while Schopenhauer's saint, right, the ideal Schopenhauerian figure, aims to extinguish all suffering, the Nietzschean Superman, Uberbench, you know, the ideal Nietzschean figure, embraces suffering. Nietzsche realized that fulfillment, you know, the true core happiness, joy, well being, doesn't simply lie in just avoiding pain as much as you can. But no, 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 no. You fucking overcome that pain. You put yourself through that shit on your way to joy. In fact, he would say suffering is a prerequisite of a rich, fulfilling life without putting yourself through hard times without putting yourself through shit through the fucking core of anxiety and, and and all this stress shit right the stress side of the argument between stress and boredom if you don't put yourself through those hard times you will never enjoy the deepest joys the life has to offer so Nietzsche's response to the stress and boredom argument would be, yeah, yeah, for sure, it can be stressful to chase your desires. Fine, that's I agree. But there is so much good in what you can achieve. So much to be had. So keep putting yourself through that stress and keep achieving that joy time and time and again. Time and time again. Time and time again. Time to, Okay. <laughs> This is what Nietzsche calls the will to power. And will to power sounds pretentious, but really what he's talking about? Growth. This is why he has this big fucking famous phrase, whatever does not kill me makes me stronger. Because suffering is a hugely important part of becoming who you are it's kind of similar to the ian you know, articles uh, note about and atelic activities right you want to do atelic activities where the process is also um, important it's not the journey uh, it's not the destination but the journey except nietzsche would say even if the journey is extremely stressful you know extremely painful uh, go for it you should do it because the destination is great and you'll learn so much during that journey um, that the journey is fucking the suffering you 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 have there just as important as the destination So here's the kind of the balance I would like to um, summarize the the, the, the final idea here because I think both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche are onto something and they balance each other out very well. Which is a suffering in itself, not knowable, right? To suffer unnecessarily is to be a fucking masochist. That's why the, the the idea of the suffering artist has a negative connotation, right? He thinks that just because he's suffering, oh, that makes him kind of better than him. Or he's clued in onto life that nobody else is. So his suffering is fuck. it's good. No, 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 no. Don't suffer unnecessarily, man. Don't fucking torture yourself. And mindfulness meditation is at least one of the solutions to this kind of unnecessary suffering. To notice it to notice these underlying mecha- mechanisms uh, that cause so much of this pain that we experience, right? I, I, I hope to do a podcast on either Buddhism or maybe mindfulness meditation or some shit like that uh, soon. I'm, I'm hoping this week to read Shunryu Suzuki's uh, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. Uh, so hopefully if I read that, that's either the next podcast or the next, next podcast. Definitely want to do a podcast on it. Either way, Unnecessary suffering don't need it, but pain is also a necessary part of growth, Schopenhauer. It awakens us to the reality of life, right? To to who we are and how to live more happily, more authentically. Like there are so many things I admittedly did not do in this life. Chances I missed out on, you know, opportunities that just uh, are no longer here because of my anxiety and I didn't take a chance. But there are also so many things I did do, that I did learn, and that I love because of my anxiety. Last weekend, I had the choice to attend a small like get together, work party-ish thing. I, I have, I'm I'm not working right now, but I'm about to start work in a few months. And um, the people who are gonna, going to be my coworkers potentially, we had a little bit of a get together. It was a small get together, but it was a social event, right? And somebody with deep, deep social anxiety, it was. I could my every cell in my body was like fuck. It was scary. It freaked me the fuck out, and as the days got closer, it was like, holy, there could this pit in my stomach was growing. 30 minutes right before the event, it was like, holy sh, why am I doing, it was the death anxiety, annihilating, eating at my core. I could have not gone and spared myself from the, the, the fucking anxiety, which is so uncomfortable. And there is the question of, okay, how much do I really need to suffer? Right? Like maybe I could have done a better job of doing some, you know, self-taught CBT and reorganized my thoughts about it and thought a little bit more rationally or, you know, uh, with a little more clarity about the event. Uh, I, I think it helped that I meditated on the train right there, which helped me uh, notice my uh, emotions better. And have a bit of a dense distance uh, from them, and also uh, the fact that I took an Adderan uh, right before, right, uh, allowed me to have probably, even though I didn't feel it because the anxiety was so bad, it probably had some cap on my anxiety, so I didn't have a fucking panic attack, right? So there is a question of the degree to which I need to suffer, but no matter how much I fucking meditated, you no, know, I could meditate to all I want, but really the anxiety was going to be there. It was inevitable. It was part and parcel of the event. And you know what? The fact that I couldn't hide my anxiety, the fact that I had to just fucking show it, forced me to bring it to the first surface, to show my authentic authentic self, to show my vulnerabilities, and to joke about them and have people make fun of me for them, right? In, in a loving way, really. It wasn't a hurtful way, right? I came out of that event feeling the sense of connection and self-confidence that, that everything I was in that moment was enough. And that's something I wouldn't have felt had I not pushed myself outside my comfort zone and into the anxiety-provoking world of the unknown. Had I not, as Nietzsche would have recommended, embraced that suffering. So I love, 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 love Schopenhauer. And I hope you also felt some kind of affection for him and his genius and his ideas, because his ideas are great. They're so true to life. I love his emo-ness. I love it. But he does miss how much good suffering can do for our lives. You know, Kierkegaard says, the the first existentialist, right, so to speak. Kierkegaard says anxiety is the best school for us. Like we can go to fucking high school, college, all this shit and learn all this shit, but ultimately what's really gonna um, edify us, what's gonna educate our minds, our hearts, Anxiety, to go through the experiences that cause this anxiety. That's why anxiety is at the core of existence, of being. Here's a quote from him. I'll end the podcast on this now. Kierkegaard says, To venture causes anxiety. But not to venture is to lose yourself. I'll see you guys next week.